0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: It's The Takeaway. I'm Nancy Solomon from the WNYC Newsroom, in for Tanzina Vega. This week, President Joe Biden delivered an address to a joint session of Congress, and in it, he touted his ambitious progressive agenda.
0: American Families Plan
2: will provide access to quality, affordable child care. We guarantee when I'm proposing the legislation, we guarantee that low-middle-income families will pay no more than 7% of their income for high-quality care for children up to the age of 5. The most hard-pressed working families won't have to spend a dime. Third, the American Families Plan will finally provide up to 12 weeks of paid leave and medical leave, family
1: medical leave. To my ear, it was more like a fireside chat from FDR and nothing like the bombastic tone we heard from our most recent former president. Within his first weeks in office, President Biden got his $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill through Congress with only Democratic support. He has since introduced a $2.3 trillion infrastructure plan that includes billions for affordable housing, in-home care, public schools, childcare, historically black colleges, and jobs. And this week. announced the $1.8 trillion American Families Plan, which includes free community college and free universal preschool, making childcare more affordable, federal paid leave, and more. Those plans add up to $6 trillion and their impact could be felt for generations. The political fate of some of these plans has yet to be determined, but one thing is quite clear. President Biden is governing to the left of where many including those on the left, expected him to be. Joining me now is Anita Kumar, a White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico, and Sungmin Kim, a White House reporter for The Washington Post. Welcome back to the show to you both.
2: Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for having us.
1: Sungmin, what does Joe Biden's presidency look like 100 days in? And how is that different from what we expected?
2: Well, I think the first thing that the what we can say about this administration 100 days in is that they have met a lot of their benchmarks that they set out, their ambitious agenda of what they wanted to do in those 100 days. A lot of that is sort of this classic strategy of under promising and over delivering. I think the shots in arms is a perfect example of that. Uh, when the administration started, President Biden said he wanted to get 100 million shots in arms by in his first 100 days in within his first 100 days he actually got he, he and his administration actually got 220 million shots out he said he wanted to pass a sweeping coronavirus relief package he did that through congress it was 1.9 trillion dollars um and i think one major point too is that he has governed pretty, in a pretty progressive manner. Um, he, the the coronavirus relief package significantly expanded a uh, relief um, that goes far beyond immediate relief from immediate relief measures from the pandemic. Um, and to the, and, and, and despite his kind of, despite his rhetoric on the campaign trail that he was always willing to work with Republicans and compromise with Republicans, what President Biden and his team has shown in his first hundred days is that he's not going to let Um, he's not going to sacrifice major uh, liberal progressive policy goals just for the sake of bipartisanship. And I think that's obviously frustrated Republicans, but it's really delighted liberals.
1: And Anita, I'd like to get your take on this as well. I mean, we're going to dig into some of these policy changes, uh, but I'm kind of curious what you think about this first hundred days in terms of just the sheer Quantity of what he's getting done. Yeah, I mean,
3: he's really stressed in these 100 days COVID, which is, you know, obviously what he needed to do, but he's really prioritized that to the extent that some of his. Uh, Supporters are saying, well, hey, what about my issues that you haven't gotten to yet, or can you prioritize those? So those are things like immigration and uh, gun restrictions and voting rights. He has talked about those things, but it's clear his priority has been the coronavirus and he has made some accomplishments on that and now he's really switching to these you know massive spending plans that you've talked about so after the 100 days he really needs to decide what it is that he wants to do not because the pandemic is done of course it's not but because he's really shifting his focus now uh to other things so the question is and and we heard this in his speech the other day you know is he focused solely on these big spending plans or does he go into those some of those other, uh, you know, issues that we heard about in the speech that really uh, pleased his supporters and activists who have been following some of those issues? And and we'll have to see how he balances those two.
1: And would you say he's done more or less or about the same of previous presidents in the first 100 days?
3: Well, I think all presidents come in, um, you know, and say, look, let me let me reverse the, the my predecessor's. Uh, You know actions if of course if it's a different party and he came in with a lot of executive actions really pushing in and pushing through this coronavirus relief plan though was huge i mean as you mentioned it was an enormous amount of money um and so that was that was a major accomplishment between the vaccines and and this huge bill i think those were major his top accomplishments of the last hundred
1: days Sungmin, a lot of Democrats thought Biden would govern more from the center, that he would play it politically safe. What did they misunderstand about this moment in politics?
2: I think that was a fair expectation to have, considering his history in politics. He's right. a member, he's a creature of the Senate, which is until recent years, this, uh, Bastion of bipartisanship, you know, where a lot of deals are made just by, you know, just, you know, slapping each other's backs and talking to people across the aisle, and Biden in the past hasn't, you, 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 you know, in, on the political spectrum, it's been hard to classify Joe Biden as a progressive, a liberal, uh, just. Uh, by the virtue of his personal politics, but I think that he um, he recognized he and his advisors recognize kind of the urgency of. This moment, I think they know that the country is still reeling from the from the impact of the pandemic and that really big, bold government action is needed right now. I've been talking with some some people close to them, and he he is just this classic, you know, FDR Democrat with this belief that government can really do good by the people, which is such a different um, different tone that we've had. Uh, from Republicans for the last several years when they've effectively made a message of saying that government, more or less government, the better. Um, So I think that's why you see it. I think that was... um, that's what is animating Joe Biden right now. Um, just really kind of knowing that there th- there is this urgency in the moment that calls for really big, expansive action to the point that it makes some Democrats even uncomfortable. I mean, we're talking about six trillion dollars of spending just in the matter of the first several months of his presidency. That is a lot of money. And obviously, he's going to have to contend with um, some members of his own party who may be uncomfortable with the sheer size of the package, the tax increases that are required to finance it. Uh, So it'll be a really interesting challenge for Joe Biden in the next coming months.
1: Yeah, he mentioned in his speech the other night, uh, the long line of cars he saw waiting for food and what is essentially a modern day bread line. Um, and, you know, one of the many ways that he's hearkening back to the depression and the need for government action. Uh, Anita, what do you think about this moment in politics? And I'm wondering how much can be attributed also to four years of President Trump? It's sort of the, we had the four years and then and the pandemic together. But you know, what do you think um, President Trump's effect has been on how Biden is responding?
3: Well, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, nothing is ever one one thing. But I think we've seen that both parties over time have gotten more extreme. So the Democratic Party has gone to the left and the Republican Party has gone to the right. That's why in recent years it's been so hard to get things done. Um, you know, perhaps some of this was Joe Biden and, and obviously he agreed to this agenda. But some of it was he was going where his party is going. Um, But I think you're exactly right. After four years of Donald Trump, you know, the Biden administration, President Biden came in. He wants to be different. Of course, he is different in his policies, but he also wants to act differently. He wants to show that he governs differently. So that's why you saw a different kind of speech. You mentioned early on uh, the tone was different. The language was different. Uh, You know, he he talks differently. You know, he sprinkled the speech with things like folks. He likes to say that word. uh, You know, it's something much more personable. He even complimented uh, Republicans for sending him a proposal that I know a proposal that the White House thinks is is much too small on this funding plan, but they they were trying to compromise or send something over. So he wants to be the anti Donald Trump. And he's really leaned into that in how he's governed and how he's talked. And I think a lot of that is, you know, showing us uh, the still the effects of of the Donald Trump presidency.
1: Sungmin, what is the reaction among voters and the people in this country to Biden's expansion of this social safety net and expansion of government spending?
2: So, in terms of his actual policy agenda, they've been the voters. If if you look at polls, it's gotten pretty uh, substantive support. Substantive support from you know, Democrats, independents and Republicans. And I think that's been one interest, one one, uh, interesting facet and strategy of this administration, that for all the talk about bipartisanship, for all the push from congressional uh, congressional Republicans, particularly Senate Republicans who are versed in this language of bipartisanship, that it. Even if his, uh, even if his plans, even if his legislation is not bipartisan within the halls of Congress, as, as you know, the coronavirus relief package did not get. Republican support, it is bipartisan among the American people. And they can look to polls to show that his agenda, whether it is uh, the coronavirus relief package, his uh, plans to kind of expand government assistance, Um, you know, obviously they have pointed to uh, public supporting for increased gun restrictions, that their plans are bipartisan among the American people. Obviously, that hasn't won over Republicans on Capitol Hill who have really tried to, you know, take his tone and his message of unity and turn it on his head by saying that he, he that Biden isn't interested in unifying government. He isn't, you know, interested in talking with Republicans and working together. But in terms of how is how his plans and his message is be, being received by the American people, the plans, his agenda, with one major exception, which is immigration and how he has handled the situation on the border. It has been largely um, supported by the American people.
1: Anita, The fact that President Biden has spent his first 100 days pursuing these progressive policy items that we've been talking about, it's got some GOP leaders incensed, uh, not surprisingly. Uh, This week, Senator Mitch McConnell said, quote, Over a short few months, the Biden officials seem to have given up on selling actual unity in favor of catnip for their liberal base. Um, and you both mentioned this a bit earlier, but tell us more, Anita, about how Republicans are reacting to President Biden's progressive agenda.
3: Well, I think some of them are surprised. And we've heard uh, you, Senator McConnell and others say, look, this isn't what he campaigned on. And it's really not. Some of that's not what he campaigned on. He you know, said that he wanted to sit down with Republicans and and compromise and work things out. But I think what's happened is as he's come into office and he's surrounded by a lot of uh, staffers that worked with him in the Obama administration is they're really remembering what happened at that time, which is President Obama tried uh, alongside Vice President Joe Biden then to really work with Republicans. And many times it just didn't work out. Uh, You know, they're they, there were, they came to an impasse. Things were delayed. And talking to people around this president, President Biden, I understand that he feels this need to hurry up and get things done. And even if he can't get Republican support, so be it. He would rather accomplish something with just Democratic support than uh, nothing uh, sitting there trying to work with Republicans. So it's a real balancing act for him, and I'm sure it's a, it's the a source of some frustration because he does he does come from that background. He did spend 36 years in the Senate trying to work across the aisle on some of those issues. Uh, So we've seen criticism from Republicans, and it really remains to be seen here in these next few weeks on some of these spending bills, what's going to happen. You know, Republicans sent over something to the White House that Democrats quickly said was not a serious uh, proposal. It was much, much smaller. Uh, But President Biden has invited members of Congress to come over again. He'll meet with the leaders of the House and Senate, both parties, in a couple of weeks. So there is that conversation, but what happens with that remains to be seen.
1: They they do seem to be sticking to kind of, you know, like talking about division instead of putting forward proposals or talking about what's wrong with the Biden proposal. I mean, do they have an argument about why child care should not be subsidized or why community college shouldn't be subsidized. I mean, in the past, they have made these arguments, but I haven't been hearing them lately.
3: I think it's been hard. Uh, and my colleagues on the Hill kind of pointed this out. It's been hard for them to focus uh, their criticism on president Biden, uh, tougher than say president Obama uh, for several different reasons. And one one of the reasons is that they, many of them worked with him, For a very long time in the Senate, and they know him. And he has a different uh, sort of reputation as this, you know, sort of your Uncle Joe, uh, you get along with your Uncle Joe kind of, you know, uh, persona. Um, But they have talked about some criticisms. Mostly it's a philosophical disagreement that we've seen uh, from Republicans and Democrats. They've always had this sort of philosophical disagreement on how big the spending should be. Uh, One of the things they're saying is it's just too much. They also are disagreeing with some of the things in these plans. And of course, uh, they disagree on how to pay for it. They do not think that uh, some of these tax increases should be pushed through to pay for the plan. So there are huge disagreements on all three of those issues.
1: A recent poll from NBC News found that voters find President Biden more moderate than President Obama at this stage of his uh, presidency. Um, even though you know it 's very clear we can see that President Biden is pursuing a much more liberal policy, so sungmin why why do you think that is?
2: Well, I think a lot of it is because of this political persona that Joe Biden had cultivated over you know de- decades in politics where he was more of a moderate, and we saw that. For, uh, we saw that for well over a year in the Democratic presidential primary, that he was the guy in the middle. He wasn't as far left as Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. He was resistant to a lot of the changes that the party had demanded, for example, diff- you know disagreements on how far to expand health care and other kind of major uh, policy differences within the D- Democratic Party. So I think that framework is still in the minds of voters, that he isn't as progressive as others in the party, but certainly, if you look at what he has done, particularly in the confines of, um, particularly in kind of the confines that he's in, because he, while he does have majorities in the House and the Senate, it is the thinnest majority possible in the Senate, and you, and it is a diverse uh, group of uh, Democratic senators who run the gamut from liberal to pretty conservative for a Democrat, and. The sheer what he has been able to do in terms of massive government spending, the fact that he has gotten um, a lot of his caucus members on board with uh, unraveling a lot of um, a lot of the 2017 tax law that was such a legislative you know, highlight for Republicans and former President Trump, I think um, a lot of times, you know, you kind of, you always kind of remember Joe Biden, the political, his, his political image in term, and rather than what he is doing right now in terms of governing.
1: I wondered if, um, I mean, that that sort of speaks to President Biden and his personality and the perception of him. Uh, But I wonder also about the perception of Obama and how much race and racism, frankly, played into this perception of him as being some kind of, uh, you know, uh, radical firebrand versus the moderate that he was.
2: I think that... um I, I You saw um, a lot more tensions between um, Obama and congressional Republicans, not just in terms of race, but in a lot of other policy differences as well. But I just think the, you just really have to look at the policies of the two men and how they have actually governed to really accurately assess um, what their impact is.
1: Okay, thanks so much. Anita Kumar is a White House correspondent and associate editor of Politico, and Sung Min Kim is a White House reporter for The Washington Post. Thanks to both of you so much.
3: Thank you.
4: Carnegie Hall has welcomed
3: a dizzying array of performers.
0: To have Andy Kaufman, Frank Zappa, and Birkett Nielsen and Horowitz on the same stage, it becomes this kaleidoscope of our history.
4: I'm Jessica Vosk. Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history, as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved institutions, Carnegie Hall. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts.
1: Opponents of California Governor Gavin Newsom have officially gained enough signatures to begin the process of recalling and replacing the Democratic leader. More than 1.6 million people signed the petition in favor of recalling the California governor, citing his handling of the pandemic and frustrations with the housing crisis and the high cost of living in the state. And at least nine people, including Republican trans activist Caitlin Jenner, have already declared their intentions to run against the governor. It's been nearly 20 years since California last had a recall election. And here to help us understand what comes next is Nicole Nixon, politics reporter for Cap Radio in Sacramento. Nicole, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So explain for us how Newsom ended up in this situation and who was behind this push for a recall.
4: So this recall is um, organized by regular citizens, which is just one of the many reasons it's so remarkable. Um, And a few things really came together for this. The first is that the organizers a few months ago went to a judge and asked for more time to collect signatures to put this before voters Uh, And they got it because of the pandemic. They got almost twice the amount of time to collect signatures. And this was around the same time that Gavin Newsom went to this very fancy restaurant in Napa wine country for a birthday party for a friend with a big group of people at the same time that he was telling everyone else in California to stay home and avoid those types of gatherings. Not a good look. Exactly. That really lit a fire under this recall campaign. It made people very angry. It helped the recall folks get more than 2 million signatures total to put this on the ballot.
1: There's also been a lot of uh, upset about California's school closures Uh, Public schools have yet to fully reopen in the state. So how much is that also feeding into this?
4: Yeah, California is at or near the bottom nationally of percent of kids back in classrooms. And this has really upset a lot of parents over the past two, three months here. Um, We actually just got some new polling data on this, though. It found that almost two thirds of public school parents actually approve of how Newsom has been handling schools during the pandemic even though you know there are concerns that kids are falling behind academically that schools still won't be fully reopened in the fall they approve of the way he's handled this um so that's good news for him although there still are some you know warning signs for him there
1: how does this process work exactly walk walk us through the steps
4: yeah. So right now we are in this window where anyone who signed a recall petition has a chance to remove their name. It was earlier this week that the, the secretary of state said there are enough valid signatures for this to move forward. So uh, there's a chance now for people to take their names off. There's a small team of Democrats working on that. So that's one way that they could sort of fend off this recall by um, finding people to remove their names. But it is a long shot. And then after that, uh, the state spends the rest of the summer coming up with a cost estimate for a recall election. And it's only then that the lieutenant governor could call a recall election, which based on these on this timeline will probably be sometime in November that people actually vote on this.
1: And what do Democrats like? What's their plan for how to manage this crisis? The
4: recall, the actual recall itself, um, they are hoping to keep the party united behind Newsom. The one thing they do not want is another big name Democrat going rogue and putting themselves in the mix as a possible replacement. That, that's what happened in the last recall in 2003. Um, the lieutenant governor at the time, his name is Cruz Bustamante. He ran as a replacement just in case, kind of as an insurance policy. Um, But his slogan was no on the recall, yes on Bustamante, which is a really confusing message for voters. Um, And I'll just point out, you know, that California looks very different than it did 18 years ago during that last recall. The state's a, a much deeper shade of blue. Democrats have a lot more power. And, you know, Newsom himself has a lot higher approval ratings than the governor did in that last recall.
1: So that was the one when Republican Arnold Schwarzenegger won the election. So um, just to put a final point on that, the the Democrat running uh, didn't really help uh, Governor Gray Davis at all. Right. Um, and so does Newsom have a strategy for, I mean, you talked about they're trying to keep big name Democrats off the ballot. Is that it or does he have any other strategy for avoiding uh, losing his seat?
4: For sure. He's painting this recall as, you know, a Republican recall driven by Trump supporters, um, political extremists, QAnon people, and he's calling it a distraction from the state's recovery. Things are looking pretty good here. We have the lowest COVID rates in the nation. He has this plan to fully reopen the economy in six weeks here. Um, so he is making the case and continue can continue to make that case that um Things are on the upswing here and he can handle it and bring the state out of out of the
1: pandemic. We were talking at my dinner table last night about uh, Caitlyn Jenner and um, how kind of, you know, unlikely it seems that she would win the election. But then I don't think, you know, too many people took Donald Trump seriously in 2015. Mm. So, um, you know, what do you what is that looking like in the state?
4: Yeah, Kate, the reaction to Caitlyn Jenner is really interesting because she came out and a lot of LGBT groups said they actually would not support her because of her support for Trump previously. Um, and she, also her website is full of merchandise you can buy, but there aren't any uh, policy proposals on there yet, which a lot of people have pointed out. Um, she's also just one of many Republicans running Um The former mayor of San Diego, Kevin Faulkner, is in. And before all of this started, he was seen as the most likely Republican to take on Newsom in 2022, which is when the governor's up for reelection again. And there's another slate of of, uh, Republican, you know, former elected officials, a former congressman from the Sacramento area have already announced that they're running, too. So it'll be a crowded field on the Republican side. And there aren't so many Republican voters in this state to begin with.
1: Right, Republicans in California haven't won a statewide election in 15 years. So um, it'll be an interesting one to watch. Nicole Nixon Mm -hmm. is a politics reporter for Cap Radio in Sacramento. Thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. There's no doubt that the COVID-19 pandemic has been devastating for the US economy, but still there's reason to be optimistic. The unemployment rate is steadily dropping and the stock markets have been on the rise in recent weeks, as the country has ramped up its aggressive vaccination campaign. But what will economists say, what, a rising tide raises all boats or something like that? I might have that off a little bit, but that hasn't always been true. Are things going to spread out more or are people at the bottom still going to be hurting?
0: Well, look, there are definitely people who are still hurting and, and I don't want to diminish that one bit. There are millions of people who are unemployed either because they uh, you know, lost their jobs and their, their former employer went away. You know or, or staying home for health reasons or because they're they don't want to get exposure to the virus there's still a lot of pain out there absolutely but we are seeing reason to think that uh, that workers are going to have the upper hand as this year progresses you know you see a lot of anecdotal reports out there of uh, all kinds of businesses especially restaurants but all kinds of businesses struggling to find workers and what that means if you're a worker is employers want you and they're willing to pay more we're seeing more signing bonuses uh rate of pay increases I think there's a good chance that by the end of this year we have not only low unemployment but higher wages at, at the lower end of the of the scale than we saw before the pandemic. That seems to be how things are lining up. Add to that, the stuff that's happened on the uh, the stimulus checks and other kind of direct assistance that's happened. American household balance sheets are in very good shape right now. And there's pent up savings from over the last year. Uh, so I think the, there's every reason to think that in the aggregate, again, not not trying to diminish people who are in a, in a difficult situation right now, but on average, uh, things should be uh, very good as, as we head into 2020, 2022.
1: Pent up savings, but also uh, significant pent up demand. I would expect after this year,
0: spending on things like durable goods is the term. You know, anything heavy, anything that's supposed to last, has just soared. So people are buying, uh, you know, exercise equipment. They're you know putting in a new deck. You know, in the first quarter. Durable goods spending rose at a 41% annual rate. That is remarkable. Um, now, that's come at the cost of services, right? So people are taking fewer trips, fewer uh, plane rides, fewer uh, hotel stays, fewer restaurant meals. Uh, what we would expect to see is for that to rebalance as time goes on. But for now, that's the that's the dynamic.
1: So you wrote in a recent piece in The Times, you cited 17 trends that have been uh, that that contribute to your economic optimism from the pace of innovation to battery technology to baby boomers retiring from the workforce. So tell us a few on your list that you think are the most significant.
0: Yeah, so I, you know, my career, I started as an economics reporter 21 years ago at the kind of turn of the century. And uh, it's been a really long slog and not a good slog in those 20 years. Uh, You know, one mild recession, one financial crisis, uh, you know, a slow recovery after the financial crisis than the pandemic. Um, I'm actually legitimately optimistic right now that some very good things could happen in the 2020s. One of those is, uh, as you say, kind of demographic, right? I think we're seeing the the uh, um, millennial generation coming into their prime earning years, their prime spending years. This is the age at which millennials are going to be buying houses, buying cars, uh, raising families. Uh, that's the time period. If you look at the life cycle of people spending, the, the age the millennials are hitting, they're, they're 30s, 40s are absolutely the age where you see the most uh, economic activity. Um, other things, you know, you see some real evidence that that innovation is starting to click in. Um, you know, this has actually been a very bad uh, last 15, 20 years for productivity, meaning the ability of the economy to make more and 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 be more uh, productive with the same resources. Um, I think there's a lot of innovations that have, people have been working on for years that maybe finally starting to pay off around battery technologies. You say uh, electric cars, driverless cars, potentially a lot of artificial intelligence work that's been happening under the radar for years and years might start to pay off. Uh, those are just a couple of the reasons that I, I think we might be in a different kind of equilibrium than what we were in throughout the first two decades of this, uh, this century
1: so let's dig in a little bit on that though like so for instance the battery technology and driverless cars like how does that end up creating you know growth in the economy
0: well think about it this way so let's say they they are able to get uh trucking to work very effectively with uh either driverless or semi-driverless uh trucks um well suddenly you know there's a couple million truck drivers in the country. Um, suddenly they can go to work doing something that is that else. And, you know, I think we have often looked at these kinds of threats as uh, as threats to jobs and in a way they are, but ultimately if you have an economy that's booming where uh, there's adequate demand for goods and services, there's plenty of demand for people to to shift to other forms of work. And so if we can produce the same things with fewer people uh, doing this job or that job, that's actually a good thing. We're seeing that right now with restaurants, right? So restaurants are having a hard time hiring people for a lot of reasons. Um, You know, if they're finding ways to be more productive, find a way to automate more processes, to serve the same number of people with fewer staff, I know we think of it in terms of jobs, but that's actually a good thing in terms of the overall productive capacity of the economy. And in periods when we think of as boom times, like the, the period, the decades after World War II, productivity was a lot higher than it is now. And you had a lot more of this kind of innovation where certain jobs would go away, but there were plenty of other jobs for people to step into.
1: One of the items on your list that I found pretty exciting was about wage growth and um The fact that the impacts of globalization have been so rough on working people's wages and that we might see this begin to the the impact of globalization will start to diminish now. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah, I think one central dynamic of the last 20 years, the first, uh, you know, the 90s, 2000s, 2010s, has been a global labor glut. Um, Lots of additional people have come into the global labor force in ways that did uh, kind of drag down the wages of a lot of kind of labor, you know, working class people in advanced countries. So, China entered the world economy in a way it hadn't been before. Uh, had lots of trade agreements with, uh, with, with various countries. You had, uh, you know, a technological revolution that allowed outsourcing of, of a lot of service work to, to countries with lower wages, you know, the kind of call centers in India or the Philippines, things like that. And those, you know, we can debate all day long, like what advantages and disadvantages that phase of globalization had. But the reality was, if you're a person with a high school degree in Kansas, you found yourself in competition for jobs and for work. With people all over the world, many of whom were used to having lower wages than than you were used to, and that's part of the story of the last you know twenty thirty years. I think that's pivoting. You know, China's wages are rising. China's demographics are, are not as favorable, uh, and more importantly, there's not another China out there about to join the world economy. It's the biggest country on earth in population. There's no other China. Um, you know, it's not like you can invent uh, you know outsourcing of call centers again. Um, so I think there's reason to think, oh, and also, uh, you know, demographics in the US are changing, like the, the, the size of the prime working age people, uh, you know, we're seeing the baby boomer generation starting to retire. As they retire, that's, uh, you know, creating plenty of demand for goods and services because they'll get those social security checks, but it's not creating uh, the same labor force. So I think if you're an American worker in the 2020s, you are going to be in demand. And it's just a question of, you know, how do we handle things so that wages are, are rising as a result of that phenomenon?
1: We're just about out of time, but what do you think about all of the stimulus plans and you know everything that Joe Biden is um, is proposing? Is how is that going to affect things going down the road?
0: I mean, I think it it is a it's a sea change in American fiscal policy and monetary policy. You know, for for in the 2010s, we were so reliant on the Federal Reserve and quantitative easing and all these things the Fed did to try and Keep the uh, the economy and the recovery going. Um, the elected leadership, uh, the Biden administration and Congress, have really taken the lead now and are now driving the train on on economic policy. That's good news in the sense that fiscal policy can be better targeted. It's better for uh, you know reducing inequality than than monetary policy. Um, you know the, the fact that there are even people out there talking about the risk of overheating, that they might have done too much, that there could be inflation or negative effects. Well, we spent the last 10 years were complaining that. inflation Inflation's too low. And so in a way, it's a it's trying to get a a kind of um, regime change in, in what American economic policy looks like in ways that can reverse and undo what's kind of been ailing us for a long time.
1: Well, you have me feeling more optimistic. Neil Irwin is a senior economics correspondent for The New York Times. Thanks so much for being here, Neil.
0: Thanks for having me, Nancy.
1: And now we shift our focus from real life political drama to the fictional kind. Political TV shows and movies have seen unwavering popularity over the decades. We wanted to know about your favorite political shows, movies, and characters, and here's what you told us.
2: Hi, this is Robin from Philadelphia. Uh, My most recent favorite political drama is Borgen, which is about a woman named Birgit Nyborg, who becomes the first female prime minister of Denmark. In addition to really enjoying the characters who felt to me much more real and less Hollywoody than a lot of characters on American shows, I also gained a better understanding of how a parliamentary system works and of what goes on behind the scenes between the media, politicians, and what they refer to as their spin doctors.
1: I always liked Air Force One with Harrison Ford as the president. Get off my plane.
0: I think the movie Dave offered an interesting commentary on fiscal responsibility. The time that his accounting friend came to the White House and went through the budget is iconic on how they found so much governmental waste.
1: The best man with Henry Fonda, who's always fantastic, a Manchurian candidate, Angela Lansbury, is so brilliantly evil. Dick with Kirsten Dunst and Michelle Williams is so funny. Some people prefer comedies that parody our lawmakers, but personally, I'm a big fan of the political thriller. I think what I love best is the mix of public policy, politics, and good old action. No matter how much high-stakes tension there is going on in the actual Washington DC, or California for that matter, there's something endlessly entertaining about the best of these shows. And through them, we get a peek behind the Capitol walls, with varying degrees of accuracy. Joining me now to talk about what the best of these shows have to offer is Dr. Lily Gorin, professor of political science and global studies at Carroll University and co-author of Mad Men in Politics. Lily, great to have you here. Thanks for having me on today, Nancy. So what do you think makes a good political thriller? Um, well, I mean, a lot
5: of it is uh, the drama, obviously. So, whatever the the narrative arc of the of the show or the movie is, and you know, some of the some of the ones mentioned by your listeners, including things like Borgin um, or the mentoring candidate, are among my favorites. Also, the depths of the characters involved and how they are interacting with politics as well.
1: Do you think that most successful political television shows tend to mirror the p- political reality of the moment? Or are they usually things like the West Wing that provide a more kind of idealistic and hopeful version of our politics? They usually go
5: in either direction of something like the West Wing or Madam Secretary, which are idealistic and and to some degree fantastic, um, or they go in the other direction like say, House of Cards um, or Scandal, where there's a lot of murder and, um, you know, sort of duplicity and secret things going on um, in the halls of power. So neither of them are really based on reality um, and they're but they're fun to watch. And of course, they have, you know, great actors and actresses and and really interesting writers who are sort of threading the plot lines.
1: I'm surprised that there aren't more shows like The House of Cards. I mean, there's obviously a huge appetite for detective stories, police procedurals, mysteries like that. And that, you know, The House of Cards is kind of a perfect blend of that, but um we we just haven't seen that many of them, right?
5: Yeah, and and again, you, you know, you you have shows that do take this up Um, and something like The Wire is another show that's actually quite political, but it's in it's not national, it's in Baltimore. um, And it's at a lower level. It's about local politics. Um, So you do have different kinds of approaches to thinking about um, the, you know, sort of the insanity of something like House of Cards, um, but you may see it in some different sort of venues.
1: I have loved access to international TV that streaming has brought us. And some of my favorite shows have been the Norwegian show called Occupied, which is a full-on political thriller. The Israeli show Prisoners of War, um, which was behind – that led to the American Homeland series. Um, And I think my all-time favorite was The Bureau, which is a French spy agency show but had a very geopolitical-focused plot. Um, have, have you seen much international TV? What, what what shows are you liking?
5: I I have. And, and a number of the ones that you are talking about, um, like The Bureau, um, are among some of my favorites and particularly Borgen, um, which, you know, the first time I saw it, I never wanted to do anything else but watch Borgen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it just, it, you know, again, and you sort of can contrast that to a show that was made um, more than a decade or two decades ago in the United States by Gina Davis, commander in chief that was on for one season, also about, uh, you know, a woman as president of the United States and all of the conflicts that she dealt with at home and in the office and so forth that were centering around her gender. And in Borgen, you see so much of the same thing, but you also see it in this, you know, in a parliamentary system um, and all of the the differences that that kind of a system um, in a coalition government has um so I think I mean I think you're right there are quite a few international shows that also show us a lot of political thrillers like Occupied which was you know again a fascinating fascinating show.
1: Yeah. Are there any particular shows that really captured the Trump era in Washington? Um well I I've been asked this question
5: before and um, the the television show that is about to debut its fourth season the Handmaids Tale was actually, um, greenlit or, you know, sort of put into production before Trump was elected president, but it debuted just after he became president. And there was a lot of discussion about how it seemed to be capturing uh, a sort of the zeitgeist of the, the the Trump years in terms of, you know, sort of having women lose autonomy or agency over themselves and their bodies. Um, and, you know, some of the ways that Mr. Trump was misogynistic in some of his commentary um, about women. And and so I don't think that The Handmaid's Tale necessarily captures the Trump years, per se, um, but television also has a lag time because things often have to go into production um, a year or two beforehand. And with COVID, it's been very difficult to, um, you know, do the filming uh, and, and produce the shows because of the limits on, you know, the capacity to do that. Safely, And so I think we may also have a lag in terms of shows that kind of reflect what people may have been feeling during this uh, Trump administration.
1: Right. So maybe it'll take a couple years, but we'll start to see something a little less dark and a little more optimistic.
5: We, we may. <laughs> There's always hope. And of course, we had shows like Scandal that tapered off
1: during this period as well, which were kind of dark as well. Dr. Lily Gorin is a professor of political science and global studies at Carroll University. Lily, thanks so much.
5: My pleasure, thanks for having me on today.
1: right everyone it's been so great talking with you this week if you want to follow me on twitter i'm at nancy solomon Two, and the show is at the takeaway shout out to the folks that make this show for you every week lee hill is our executive producer amber hall is our senior editor and polly irungu is our digital editor our line producers are jackie martin and jose olivares Ethan Oberman, Meg Dalton, Patricia Jacob, and Lydia McMullen Laird are our producers. Sham Sundra helped us out this week on the board. Vince Fairchild is our broadcast engineer, and Jay Cowett is our director and editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Nancy Solomon in Fratanzina Vega, and this is The Takeaway. <music>